Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, three conversations centered on three major issues this election. Later in the hour, we ask how the campaign rhetoric we're hearing about the economy measures up to the economic data. Peter Erasm will join us for that. He's an economist at ISU. Then we'll hear how Iowa's Secretary of State, a Republican, is combating combating election myths, these false claims of election fraud within his own party. I'll talk with Tom Barton of the Gazette, who's done some wonderful work on that in the past few days. But first, climate change. To curb global warming, President Biden has set an ambitious goal of cutting America's greenhouse gas emissions roughly in half by 2030. And it seems like a long ways away, but 2030, eight years away, right? Less than eight years away. The measure he signed this summer, the Inflation Reduction Act, includes $370 billion for fighting climate change, uh, incentives, for instance, for electric utilities to increase their reliance on some low-emission energy sources like uh, solar, nuclear, uh, for consumers uh, to buy electric vehicles, and for businesses to invest in energy efficiency. Uh, The EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, under Biden, has moved to limit emissions of methane. Uh, That's, of course, a potent, very potent greenhouse gas and preparing for more regulations of the energy sector. Now, if you remember, Republicans opposed that legislation passed by Congress focused on climate efforts. And according to The New York Times, they are set to mount congressional investigations into many of them. They could, according to the Times, also seek to unwind some of the spending from this newly signed climate law and will likely challenge future regulations. They will also push legislation to speed up fossil fuel development by reducing federal regulation on new drilling uh, projects. Information from the New York Times. Well, let's talk about what's at stake in this election in terms of our climate by welcoming back to our program Gene Talkley. He's a climate scientist, professor emeritus of agronomy at Iowa State University. Hi, Gene. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me again, Ben. ben. I want to make sure we're, we're, we know, all know we're focused on climate science. Uh, we don't know what the future congressional action may be. We don't know the outcome of the election. This half hour, primarily focused on climate science, not politics, and measures uh, so far taken by Congress this summer aimed at curtailing greenhouse gases. What's your question for Gene Talkley about our current path to curtail greenhouse gases? one 866 one 780 9100 or email us, river2river at Gene, I wonder if you can do a quick flyover or walk through the key aspects of this um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. We can ignore the name for, for now. Uh, let's talk about climate change, the hundreds of billions. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, fly over it quickly, and perhaps then we can drill down on some of the aspects in depth. Sure. Um, so if I just focus on the on the climate side of it, I, I see uh, two broad areas that are covered uh, in quite a bit of detail in this bill. One is agricultural, of course, which is uh, important for Iowa, and it, it spans uh, 
the breadth of, of issues that are agriculture related to climate change. And the other is consumer rebates, which we've had these in the past. And this is another a ramp up of uh, uh, consumer uh, rebates available both to rural and urban uh, households. So th- those are the two main ones that, that I see where um, uh, we really have a stake in, in Iowa. Okay, let's uh, stick with the consumer rebates here because that will affect most of us, and then we'll address the uh, ag community. Uh, We all have households. (laughs) Most of us have cars. Uh, We have to have our houses heated. We have to cook our food on stoves and so forth. What, What is in there for all households? So we've had rebates in the past uh, for many years, uh, and these are offered through state energy agencies and uh, uh, utility firms and even through uh, retailers uh, that we buy our appliances from. So we're not; uh, these are not uh, foreign to us. And also we've had weatherization in the past, which weatherization improvement, uh, which means improving our homes for making them more energy efficient. We've had those also. So... Uh, and any household can apply for these. So if we look at some examples, um, for instance, it's uh, for an electric stove, you can get an $840 rebate uh, if you buy a more efficient uh, electric stove for your for your home. So that's one that, um, you know, if, uh, if your readers have a stove that's needing replacing anyway, this is a good opportunity to do it and do it uh, now and enjoy not only the reduced price, but the energy efficiency that will come with the lifetime of that stove. Uh, others that are uh, in play are the uh, um, to buy, uh, to install a, a heat pump uh, for water heaters uh, that you can get $750 uh, rebates on. Uh, if you put a heat pump for space heating the whole home, and those are more expensive, uh, but you can get an eight thousand uh, dollar uh, rebate on that one. So those are explicitly mentioned in the in the legislation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, some things that are, and and you can add and find more more than one that you can take advantage of. And if we include weatherization of replacing windows and doors that are leaky and, and not energy efficient. That can add up pretty quickly, but you could get a total, any household could get a total rebate of up to $14,000 Wow! for these uh, these rebates. So this is not uh, nickels and dimes. This is real money. And, uh, so, and then to, to, to see that that kind of an investment now and over the next 10 years, the, uh, the savings that you'd accrue with those uh, investments is, is pretty substantial. So uh, I would encourage people to think about their situation and, and uh, consider uh, these kind of options. I think they're going to be available January 1st, if I read the uh, t- t- text right. Mm-hmm. Okay, staying with the household items, you know, we can benefit from those personally, but how does our planet benefit from from that? Is that quantifiable um, through, you know, uh, getting better insulation in our house, changing our, our stove, and for instance? Uh, absolutely. If it's done nationwide, uh, we know from, from our experience that just replacing uh, light bulbs with the uh, more efficient uh, light bulbs that are now available uh, uh, you can see, we can see that in the household energy consumption that that it has had an impact. Do you think 
you know, you know, half a dozen or a dozen light bulbs in the house are replaced, you think, well, that can't really matter that much to the whole nation's uh, energy use. But in fact, it does. And when you add electric stoves and air conditioners and and heating systems, uh, then you're talking again about uh, big amounts. So it, in fact, does reduce our carbon emissions and it does uh, contribute to these uh, national goals that we've set. Gene Talkley, climate scientist at the ISU, Professor Emeritus of Agronomy, giving us uh, some really interesting ideas. I think people are taking note of the, the cost savings in the households and, and uh, how to also uh, benefit our planet and, and stem the worst that um, climate change will have in store for us unless we uh, really get to work on on reducing the greenhouse uh, gases around the planet. You mentioned the other part here, the uh, uh, parts of this uh, Inflation Reduction Act aimed at uh, agriculture. What is there in particular? Through agriculture, we have uh, uh, incentives that are are being uh, dispersed through some uh, familiar agencies for our rural uh, people. The uh, Commodity Credit Corporation, the CCC, has been uh, around for decades and has worked with farmers on loans and and incentives uh, programs. Uh, and they have some environmental quality incentive programs that are new now, Have look, taking a look at specifically reducing methane emissions from livestock. Methane, of course, is a very potent greenhouse gas, and, and so they're looking at uh, uh, ways to change the diet of uh, beef and uh, dairy animals so that they there will be less uh, methane emissions. There's also They're also uh, looking at soil carbon, improving soil carbon through incentives, reducing nitrogen losses, and uh, capturing or avoiding uh, emissions of nitrous oxide as well. These are all potent greenhouse gases. So they're working uh, directly with, uh, with farmers, but also through uh, research on measuring these uh, what we call fluxes from the surface. That is, we know that carbon is released in the, the decay process of, of, of uh, detritus on the surface, crop residue, but uh, uh, there are ways that in using uh, uh, tillage practices and cover crops where we can secure more of that actually in the soil. And so there are incentives to to, to do um, both of these and also to, to measure uh, the effect so that we it can be quantified and farmers can be assured that they are uh, contributing to uh, a reduced uh, carbon emissions, which uh, we're all interested in. So yeah. that's the Commodity Credit Corporation. Um, also, the Natural Resource Conservation Service uh, also uh, pr- is providing uh, uh, incentives for carbon sequestration and, and reducing carbon dioxide, as well as uh, rural electrification. And uh, there's a there's language throughout the bill that calls attention to rural areas and underserved areas, both in the area of incentives and in in areas of build-out of renewable energy. So as I read this, uh, there would be incentives for small business and farmers to install solar uh, panels on roofs. We have a lot of roof space in our rural areas with small manufacturing and 
and confinement agriculture uh, animal facilities uh, that that could be used for uh, solar panels. So it's worth looking at uh, for those that have been, you know, on the verge of uh, going with uh, more of these renewable energies, this is worth taking a look at because there'd probably be some good incentives. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I'm understanding you right, just like with the household consumer rebates here in the ag community, it's not a matter of not knowing or developing practices that will dramatically reduce greenhouse gases. We know what practices will do that by and large. And I heard you maybe half dozen times in the last few minutes say the word incentive. It is the incentives that are going to be key here, if I'm listening to you, hearing you correctly. Do you feel, Gene Talkley, the incentives are adequate to get enough um, people in the ag industry on board to make a real difference? I do, because they're they're not only uh, incentives, uh, and, you know, you can... Uh, quantify the the, the uh, reductions of carbon and so on, but it's also it's also a, a, a symbol and a, a, of of a commitment. And and once we start on this, we're seeing this in other areas too. That once uh, these become more more visible on the landscape and more people are adopting them and and experiencing uh, reductions in energy use and so on, it, it's a snowball effect that others. Uh, join in and and uh, it it does in fact have a, a very positive impact will it make sense uh, for the bottom line in ag industry as well that's the hope that in uh, and, and by the way these are not regulations now so uh, the incentives uh, are more widely uh, accepted across the political spectrum so uh, yes i think that uh, in aggregate we'll see some uh, real benefit. We're seeing, in fact, we're seeing this with uh, households now in, in general, that there are more households in lower income, I'm not saying low, but a, a, a lower income uh, families that are adopting solar energy. This was a report just out today that um, the median income uh, for people adopting solar now is declining, which means that there are more people, a broader spectrum of people, uh, people who maybe are you know, on a week-to-week paycheck or something, that are seeing the need to invest in this. So I think it's 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 really going to be, have a, a positive effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last few minutes of this half hour, we're continuing with climate scientist Gene Talkley. Let me talk specifically about ethanol. I believe more than half of our corn goes toward ethanol in the state. Um, what will uh, or should become of our ethanol industry in the coming years, um, given that it's um, uh, arguable whether ethanol is is green or how green it is, right? Yeah, that's, it's, there's been a lot of discussion about, about ethanol, but uh, I think currently it's viewed as a, at least as a transition fuel that uh, because of, there's so much uncertainty in the in the international oil markets and other sources, and and uh, nuclear is uh, not uh, is is that's not settled yet whether that's something we need to readopt. So I think having a, an, an extra supply, an extra source in the short term here anyway is certainly a wise uh, decision. And so I think uh, for the next few years there'll be uh, 
a good market for our, our um, renewable energy from, from uh, corn mm-hmm. and soybeans. Okay, in the last five minutes or so, you've been given us plenty of incentives uh, for regular households, uh, for the ag industry, um, but uh, I think we, we need to, maybe we need to be scared a bit, too. I'm not sure if, if you're on board with that, Gene. Uh, we're seeing plenty of uh, extreme weather, change in our climate. Where are we headed? Um, and, and with these measures, how much of the worst that's being predicted will be headed off? That's where our, uh, th- these international agreements uh, are come into play because these are focused on keeping the uh, global average temperature from exceeding the two degrees uh, Celsius or one and a half degrees uh, Celsius in the short term uh, because going beyond that level, and, and that's three and a half degrees uh, Fahrenheit or so, uh, we, uh, if we go beyond that, there are some things like uh, uh, Arctic sea ice and, and uh, Antarctic ice that are uh, loss of, of these major ice sheets, are, uh, those are irreversible. And so those are uh, things that we want to avoid if we are to avoid really serious consequences of climate change by the end of the century. So... Um, we need to uh, see that as a, as an overarching uh, motivation for us when we adopt these measures, when we go to the voting booth um, coming up here, that we think about climate and we think about what we can do uh, because it's uh, it's a positive factor in the short term that we have some opportunities through rebates and and. To, to invest in climate smart uh, uh, practices, but we also contribute in the long term then to reducing these uh, rises in global average temperature. Right, and then that may be somewhat of a handicap in our election system because you know we are very used to, for whatever reasons, uh, Gene, you know this, you know, focusing on the short term in in elections, um, short term issues. Um, uh, and this is really asking voters to focus on long-term, multi-generational issues. Um, you know, asking the question: Are you willing to make a sacrifice for the sake of the planet, for the sake of our children, young people, for their children and their grandchildren? Right. That's correct. And uh, it's uh, you know, if we look back at history, you know, I mean, there are recessions and inflations that come and go, and there are. Uh, civil unrest that comes and goes and changes of political systems that come and go. But climate change is is relentless and it's uh, now in one direction. And uh, so we need to to respect that and uh, think about, as you point out, the next generations. Right. And, and when we go back to the Inflation Reduction Act and the hundreds of billions there to stem climate change, what, uh, having looked at it as it's uh, being implemented here in the coming months and, and years, um, what do you see as the most challenging aspects um, uh, of the, uh, the act there and all of those monies toward this end? Well, I think that you know the the actual dispersion of it to to people who need it and who can use it uh, is is good. I mean, we've got we've got uh, methods to disperse it out that are well tested, and we have 
former Governor Vilsack in charge of the USDA, and, and a lot of this is coming through his agency. So he has he knows how to do this, and he's on board with these sorts of things. So those, those are the positives, and, and um, I think that it is it has a lot of opportunity to uh, uh, reach. Uh, segments of society that so far have not been able to uh, participate because of the uh, you know low income or rural areas that uh, just don't don't have the access to some of these. So there's there's some things to be optimistic about, and I think uh, an early and uh, intense uh, participation in these programs will show our legislators that people really are interested and are willing to step up to the plate and invest their own funds. Uh, along with some uh, incentives to to see this happen. Of course, uh, the climate is a concern for the everyone on this planet. Uh, we had the outcome of Brazil's presidential election on Sunday uh, being hailed as a crucial victory for um, the global climate. Uh, experts saying the country now has an opportunity to curb rampant uh, deforestation of the a huge and magnificent Amazon rainforest to uh, jumpstart a green economy there in Brazil. Um, uh, how, how did you greet this news? How crucial is Brazil in the overall picture? This is really critical. I mean, we consider the the Amazon uh, forest to be the lungs of the planet. These are the these are the this is a, a huge area that is uh, absorbing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen and it's the very uh lifeline of of the health of the planet so this is uh if they can indeed follow through and and uh, suppress this movement of uh, to reduce uh, the amazon rainforest this is this is good for the whole planet yeah in, in the few seconds we have remaining gene give us a, a vision of the next uh, what iowa what the midwest what the nation you hope will look like in terms of uh, technology to stem climate change in, in the next 5, 10, 15 years? How will we change most dramatically, do you think, hopefully? I think that we're, we're going to see more build out of, of solar uh, energy across the state. Uh, I know there's some uh, impediments there, but it, it makes a lot of sense now. We have a lot of incentives. Wind, I think there's a lot of potential for for wind, uh, our own research seems to show that uh, build-in of wind energy, that is, we can go, we can be more uh, intense within the existing wind farms. We can put up more turbines per unit area, I think, uh, uh, to, uh, and we can go taller. Uh, certainly, uh, I, I see that as a, as a possibility. Okay. So I see, the, I see Iowa as being a big player in uh, wind energy, renewable wind er renewable energy production. Energy. Okay. Gene Tonkley, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us again. Professor Emeritus of Agronomy at ISU, climate scientist. Gene, take care. Thank you for the hopeful words. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, I'll talk with ISU economist Peter Erasm and ask how the campaign rhetoric we're hearing measures up to the actual economic data. That's when we continue I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, digging into key election issues with experts. Uh, Last half hour, if you were with us, um, the climate challenge. We talked with climate scientist Gene Talkley. By the way, if you missed that, no problem. Make sure you're subscribed to our River to River podcast uh, so you don't miss a single show. Well, now let's dig into economic data to see how the narratives presented by candidates measure up to reality, as far as we can tell. Peter Orasm is a professor of economics at Iowa State University. We often turn to Peter on uh, economic stuff. Peter, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Let's talk about inflation as a a key issue uh, this go-round, this election cycle, um, on voters' minds, certainly, because we're all feeling it. Give us a snapshot of the current uh, state of inflation and how it compares with past decades. Well, certainly for about 35 years, we had inflation that hovered around the 2% Federal Reserve target rate of inflation. And so the current surge of inflation is something we really haven't seen since uh, the late 70s and early 1980s. And uh, it's been uh, quite persistent. So the Federal Reserve is having a lot of trouble trying to uh, uh, reduce the rate of inflation by hiking interest rates rather aggressively. Mm -hmm. And of course, the narratives here, uh, Democrats say, hey, it's a global phenomenon. Um, All countries experiencing inflation to whatever degree, of course, made worse for the many countries, uh, especially in Europe, um, because of the war in Ukraine. Republicans say uh, President Biden responsible in large degree for the high inflation uh, being driven by government spending. If I have those two narratives more or less encapsulated, uh, (laughs) which of these is closer to the truth? Comment on them. Well, I think ultimately the current rate of inflation is is being driven by the massive increase in government spending early on in the pandemic and what turned out to be an exceptionally mild recession, very short-lived recession. And so we uh, had a massive increase in, in, in the money supply as the Fed tried to accommodate that increase in government spending. And much more so, for example, than the federal government's response to the Great Recession, which was a very serious disruption of economic activity. And so I think the ultimate source of the current inflationary pressures uh, is is uh, an outcome of that particular surge in government spending, some of which, of course, was bipartisan. I mean, you had both parties who were uh, interested in trying to... Uh, uh, sort of shove money into the economy in the election year of of, of 2020, and so um, I think um, uh, that's the 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 biggest reason. Certainly, supply uh, disruptions due to the disruption of international trade and international supply chains has a factor. Certainly, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, is a factor. But most of the inflationary pressure began almost a a full year before the Russian incursion into Ukraine. So, Peter, tell us about some of the other major economic indicators that tell us about the health of our economy, aside from inflation. 
Well, uh, from my perspective uh, of over 40 years as, as an economist, this is one of the strangest economies because on some indicators, we are at historically very strong uh, economic indicators, and on others, we're extremely weak. So just as one uh, example, we had 3.8 million unfilled vacancies in August. A normal pre-pandemic month, we would have 5 million vacancies total. So we have almost as many unfilled vacancies as we had vacancies before uh, the pandemic hit. So there's very strong demand for workers, and that's, of course, driving a very low unemployment rate. On the other hand, if you look at employment, we're at historically low rates of employment relative to the population. And the reason is so many people have dropped out of the labor market and don't appear to be coming back. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is that the pandemic really shut down immigration. And if you had just gone on trend immigration pre-pandemic, we would have about 1.8 million workers in the United States. And so the shutdown of immigration is one of the reasons why we have such weak labor supply response to this very hot uh, labor market. And neither the Republicans nor the Democrats have been particularly eager to try to, for example, increase the number of H-1B visas to make up for that shortfall. The second reason is the a number of people have dropped out of the labor market uh, who don't appear to be coming back. And uh, between the loss of the immigrants and particularly the exit of older workers from the labor market, we're about 3.4 million employees below where we ought to be, which is roughly the number of unfilled vacancies. And so that shortfall of the labor market is also, uh, to my mind, the biggest reason why we have such supply-side disruptions, and that's also feeding into inflationary pressures. So specifically on immigration, then perhaps we'll have a moment to, to talk about some other issues here, too. Do you see a real uh, a difference? Um, um, you know, early voting has been going on between uh, the parties, what they're saying, their rhetoric. Uh, if you see immigration is really a key to solving or helping a lot of our economic problems in Iowa and across the U.S., do you see a, a difference between the parties there on their policies? No, and, and in fact, uh, somewhat surprisingly, you might have thought that there would be a shift in policy from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. But I, I think that the sense is that immigration is such a, uh, a poison pill to, to get into that both parties are, are, are basically avoiding it. And with, you know, basically a 50-50 split in the Senate, uh, I don't think that there's a lot of political will to try to address that concern, certainly going into a, uh, an election. Maybe they'll start thinking about it in uh, December. But if you really wanted to fight the inflationary pressures in the U.S., you have to do something to either goose the supply side or reduce the demand side. And, and of course, reducing the demand side, you know, you run the risk of, of going into a recession uh, it seems to me that that trying to expand the supply side through some some rational uh, recovery of of the labor markets and in particular the immigration labor market would be a reasonable way to try to attack inflation and perhaps much more successful than the other things that have been tried. 
Mm-hmm. So going forward, um, perhaps you've already partially answered this, but perhaps to reiterate, do you see different economic scenarios going forward depending on what happens uh, in terms of control of Congress, whether uh, Democrats hold both chambers, whether they give up one chamber to the Republicans, or, or whether both chambers go to the Republicans. Uh, how does that figure when you put that uh, sort of an economic uh, framework around it? Well, if if uh, I'm correct that uh, the key driver uh, of inflation was this historically unprecedented surge in in, in federal spending uh, in in 2020 and 2021. Um, the some of the recent moves on the part uh, of the Biden administration are are still going in that same direction, which you might view as adding fuel to the fire. On the Republican side, there are complaints about inflation, but as far as I can tell, no particular. Uh, policy is being uh, is being forwarded, so it's a little bit more difficult to figure out what the strategy is on on the Republican side. Um, maybe that'll become clear, but usually, if you have divided government where the president and the Congress are on a, opposite sides, you don't get a whole lot accomplished. Uh, you have the uh, the veto on the one side, and and you have. Uh, perhaps a lot of uh, 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 trying to re- redo history through uh, committee hearings on, on in the Congress. And so uh, there may not be a whole lot that happens in the next two years if the Republicans uh, gain uh, control of one or both houses. Okay. Peter Orasm, always nice to be able to turn to you and your expertise, professor of economics at Iowa State University. Until next time, Peter, I'm sure we'll be knocking on your door again. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope this was useful. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. And finally today, this day, one week from Election Day of the 2022 midterms, another key issue on the minds of many voters Of course, election misinformation. Iowa's Secretary of State, Paul Pate, he's a Republican, and the Iowa Secretary of State's office have been trying to tamp down on voting misinformation, disinformation. Uh, This also while members of his own party, the GOP, uh, some pushing conspiracy theories, including, uh, including those running for office. Tom Barton is with us, a Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief uh, at the Gazette. Uh, He came out with an in-depth article this week looking at uh, uh, those uh, false claims of election fraud and what the Secretary of State is uh, trying to do about it. Tom, welcome to our program. Thank you, Ben. And now you focus on the uh, Secretary of State's uh, fact versus myth versus fact website. So let's just talk about a little bit... Uh, about the, the the false beliefs that are out there, and these are, as far as I can tell, when we go through the the website there, uh, myth versus fact, and, and there are a number of of them listed there. These are all bits of misinformation that can feed into the big lie that the 2020 uh, election was stolen. So, so remind us of, of what types of claims we're um, having to refute here. Yeah, so some of the the biggest claims um, that uh, the Secretary of State is um, having to refute um, that uh, is being pushed by some Republican candidates running for office is this notion that uh, vote tabulators are connected to the Internet. 
uh, which would make them vulnerable to hacking and manipulation. Uh, Iowans vote on paper ballots in all elections, and those ballots are preserved to ensure accurate results. Vote tabulators are not connected to the Internet or to each other, um, and every vote tabulator is stored securely when not in use. And then it undergoes a logic accuracy test in which the public is invited to attend and watch. And several times, um, Secretary Pate has, has, you know, said, look, for anybody um, who has questions about this, you know, we're open, we're transparent about it. You know, I'll be in, you know, whatever local jurisdiction uh, there um, with other election officials um, to, you know, test the machine and, 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 and do the logic accuracy test you know, you're welcome to watch, you're welcome to ask questions. And he's been very open and transparent about that. And so, you know, sample ballots are tested on the machine to ensure that the tabulators are working correctly and recording votes properly. Um, Post-election audits um, are conducted in all of Iowa's 99 counties to ensure that the hand count and the tabulator tolls match. And in the 2020 elections, the post-election audits match tabulator results in all 99 counties. Um, the other assertion um, is that hand counted results are more secure and should be implemented again with some Republican candidates running running for office, you know, pushing and asserting that electronic voting machines and tabulators, whether connected to the internet or not, um, can be hacked in, in, in according to them have no place in our elections. Um, They've also called for eliminating same-day voter registration and no-excuse absentee voting in Iowa. Um, Tate has said that hand-counting 1.7 million ballots for the results of one election would take several several weeks and would be much more prone to human error and potential fraud um, than using vote tabulators that are certified, tested, and audited before and after the election to ensure accuracy. Yeah. And just a whole um, point by point on this uh, Secretary of State website, he goes through other myths. More people voted than are registered. A myth that needs to be exploded if it isn't already. Iowa has, quote, dirty voter rolls. Not true. Hundreds of thousands of people were purged from the voter rolls after the 2020 general election without their knowledge. Also uh, a myth there. Let's move on to what you focus on in your article, too, uh, about some of the local GOP candidates embracing these conspiracies. Who can you point to? Um, yeah, so um, at least um, four Republican candidates um, running for office um, attended a summit um, back in July in Independence with Douglas Frank, a mathematician, chemist, and teacher from Ohio who's been traveling the country, speaking to, gl- to groups, claiming to have discovered algorithms used to rig the 2020 election and that, again, voting rolls had, had, had been hacked. Um, and so, uh, again, there were four, at least four candidates um, on, on video who um, uh, attended the summit and have since um, espoused um, some of the debunked allegations um, that have been promoted by, by Douglas Frank. Um, it's worth noting that um, Frank uh, that had his phone seized by FBI agents in September as part of a federal probe into a Colorado clerk who was under indictment 
for allegations of tampering with election voting equipment last year and what prosecutors say was a deceptive scheme to breach voting system technology used across the country. In court records, prosecutors say Frank met with Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters and members of her staff back in April of last year in her office and and alleged that during the meeting, Frank told Peters that uh, the county's election management system was vulnerable to to outside interference, and the group discussed concerns that the state was going to um, wipe the machines, according to to, to court records. So, um, again, you have at least these four Republican candidates who who attended this summit, um, and... um, you know, one in particular who's running for um, office in, in Lynn County claiming on her campaign website um, that uh, Frank analyzed Iowa voter rolls in data published by the Iowa Secretary of State's office that showed, quote, voter rolls are no longer behaving randomly county by county. Um, Paul Pate, the Republican Secretary of State, has ref- refuted the claims. Um, Iowa conducts voterless maintenance on a constant basis in recent changes to state law and, and partnerships. Um, have helped the Secretary of State's office ensure um, uh, clean voter rolls, uh, according to the office, quote, the cleanest voter rolls possible. Um, And Pate as well has gone on uh, uh, Twitter, on social media, um, to say that none of these self-proclaimed experts have provided any actual evidence of, of any hacking of any election system across the state of Iowa and has asked for them to turn over evidence to law enforcement and that they've refused. Yeah. So there's no evidence here, but yet, um, you know, for, I guess, political purposes um, um, to tap into uh, a certain category of voter, um, uh, they are espousing this, reinforcing uh, these uh, patently false ideas uh, about election fraud from our, our last election. Nevertheless, uh, Paul Pate has been criticized for not disavowing election deniers, you point out in your article. Uh, On the ballot, he's facing the Lynn County Auditor, Joel Miller. He's the Democratic challenger running against uh, Pate. Uh, How do you, uh, what are his claims and and how do you evaluate those? Yeah, um, so, I mean, the truth be told, you know, Paul Tate kind of finds himself in in a difficult position, right? Um, you know, he doesn't want to, you know, alienate um, members, people within his own party, but at the same time, you know, having to counteract the misinformation, the disinformation, um, to to make sure that you know those those claims and, and debunked allegations don't continue to um, sow doubt into. Um, you know, the confidence and, and faith that the public has um, in, in Iowa's elections and, and, and voting systems. Um, so he's, he's, you know, walking kind of a, 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 a tight line of, you know, making sure to push back against those, um, those myths, but at the same time, you know, not publicly calling out people within uh, his own party. Um, you know, he he says that he's not publicly chastising um, Republican candidates and officials in the state who, um, you know, have alleged voter fraud or, or, or perpetuating the quote unquote big lie um, so as to avoid, I guess, giving their false claims publicity and focusing instead on um, providing what, what he calls the hard facts to, to counter the myths. 
um, and says that, um, you know, if, if he starts calling these candidates and officials out and, 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 and he argues just brings more attention to them, gives them more oxygen, um, and then, you know, what does that do? It just lends more, um, you know, credibility or notoriety to, to their view. And, and he says, quote, I'm not going to help them. You know, I'm going to stay tuned in on the myths and the facts and, and hope that it works that way. Yeah, but you, you do point out in your article, though, that uh, Paul Pate was among a, a small group attending a an October 11th victory rally in Cedar Rapids. And this was headlined by Harriet Hageman. She's the one who defeated Wyoming uh, Representative Liz Cheney in the Republican primary, a supporter of former President Trump. Um, she has said that the, the election was rigged, uh, um, that those false claims. Um, Pate was there, right? He was at that rally, but he has a different story as to why he was there. Yeah, so when I asked him about this, um, he says that um, he, he wasn't there to um, support Harriet uh, Hageman, um, that um, he was there on behalf of the Republican Party of Iowa. So the Republican Party of Iowa um, brought uh, Harriet Hageman um, in to, to do these kind of victory rallies um, across the state. Um, and and um, Pate, um, who's from Lynn County, um, uh, former mayor of, of, of Cedar Rapids, um, said that, uh, you know, this is, this is my hometown, this is my own County. And, and I was there, um, you know, as, as a member, as an official of the, the, the Republican party to, um, you know, help energize, uh, GOP supporters, donors, volunteers, um, uh, heading into to the November midterm election and said that to some extent he was also there to answer questions about elections and, and to give them facts on, on what we do here in Iowa. Okay, Tom Barton, thanks for the excellent reporting on a very important topic. Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief of the Gazette. Uh, Tom, thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Hope you'll tune in for Politics Day tomorrow. Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Today's River to River, produced by Sam McIntosh. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.